we've been focusing on China this programmatic season because of the important role on the world stage and in US economic and foreign policy. It's no secret that China is in the midst of dynamic change and many believe that they are now our equal in soft and hard power. Luckily, our speaker tonight, Dr. Elizabeth Economy, is one of the nation's foremost experts on Chinese domestic and foreign policy and can help us understand just what this means for American influence abroad. Good evening and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Moderating our event is Steve Gardner, Professor and Director of the McBride International Center for McBride Center for International Business at Baylor University. And Steve, I have to say congratulations to Baylor's basketball team for their win in March Madness. I am very sorry to say that I did not have them at the top, uh, so my bracket did not do as well, but congratulations and what a tournament that was. Steve will be in discussion with Dr. Elizabeth Economy, Senior Fellow for Chinese, uh, China Studies at CFR, and also a Senior Fellow at Stanford University on the subject of her latest book, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. You can purchase your copy of The Third Revolution at Interabang Books, our local bookstore partner. Our audience receives a 10% discount from the Interabang Books online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And remember that discount code is good for not just the third revolution, but any of the books in your shopping cart. Dr. Economy also has a new book that will be released in November later this year. So keep an eye out for that later. And tonight is the last program of our seven event series with Baylor University. I want to thank Baylor again and Steve in particular who I visited with last month just a few weeks ago. I can't believe uh, how long ago that seems already but just a few weeks ago in uh, at, at the university it was a pleasure to visit and I uh, just want to thank him in particular for his wonderful support of our council and this series uh, and allowing us to partner on this with you. We are grateful and we look forward to doing uh, it again with you soon. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone that you too can sponsor a program and get in touch with our Alana Buenrostro if you are interested at 956 4661149 about sponsorship opportunities. And now, Steve, the floor is yours. Thanks to both of you again. Well, thank you so much, Liz Brailsford. We have two Liz's here tonight. So uh, thank you, Liz Brailsford. Uh, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to work with you and Rachel Vogel and Kirsten Kullenberg and others at the council and at Baylor uh, to produce this series. Uh, Again, welcome to Dallas, Liz, and your new role as president of the council. Uh, I've already enjoyed getting to know you and look forward to working with you in the future. We've already made some really exciting plans and looking forward to all of that. And now special thanks to Liz Economy for joining us today to discuss the changing role of China in the world. Elizabeth Economy is a Senior Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Dr. Economy received her BA with honors from Swarthmore College, where she now serves on the governing board. Uh, 
and her master's from Stanford University, where, again, she currently serves as a senior research fellow. And she earned her PhD from the University of Michigan. And right now, I'll just mention that her dissertation title back in 1994 was Negotiating the Terrain of Global Climate Change Policy in the Soviet Union and China, Linking uh, International and Domestic Decision-Making Pathways. So back in 1994, when some people in this country were still questioning the reality of climate change, uh, Dr. Economy was already exploring the international implications of that issue. Uh, her, as, as Liz Brailsford just mentioned, her most recent book, The, the Third Revolution, uh, Xi Jinping in the New Chinese State, was published a couple of years ago by the Oxford University Press and has really become required reading for anyone who hopes to understand the current Chinese landscape. She's the author or editor of four other books and numerous publications in the academic literature and popular press. Her next book, The World According to China, will appear in November, and I'm already looking forward to that one. I also recommend for your attention uh, Dr. Economy's testimony to the Senate, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee only a few weeks ago, including that includes a comprehensive set of policy recommendations that I think should be quite helpful to the Biden administration. So welcome, Liz, to this joint project of Baylor University and the World Affairs Council of DFW. In your book, The Third Revolution and your recent Senate testimony, you begin by laying out the changes that have occurred in China since President Xi came to power in 2012, uh, defining the challenge that we now face in the Western world. Then you conclude with policy recommendations for the U.S. I'd like to go through a similar process. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, you talk about the third revolution. What are these three revolutions that China has experienced and how do they differ from one another? Uh, sure, um, and, and thanks, Steve. It's really great to be here with you and with Liz, um, the World Affairs Council and, and Baylor. Um, I have to say, you are the only person I can remember in I don't know how many years who has introduced me with my dissertation from 1994. And there's so much wrong with that, I have to say. First of all, there was the Soviet Union. Second, it was 1994, which clearly dates me. And third, the title's like 800 words long. So in any case, but we'll- That's a dissertation. That We're gonna focus on Xi Jinping and, and China uh, tonight. Um, so, you know, the, the idea that, how I thought about the third revolution or the three revolutions really came to me uh, from a speech that uh, Xi Jinping gave uh, at the 19th party Congress in 2017, when he said, you know, China has stood up, grown rich, become strong, and now is moving towards center stage. Uh, and it occurred to me that that kind of defined sort of the three periods of, of Chinese contemporary uh, history. So China stood up is the first revolution and that's the revolution that Mao Zedong led uh, that you know, created the uh, contemporary Chinese Communist Party state, the People's Republic of China as we know it today in 1949. <clears throat> Excuse me, if you fast forward, you know, roughly 30 years uh, to 1978, 1979, you have the second revolution and that's Deng Xiaoping. And that's the period of China getting rich. Uh, and it's a period where, you know, uh, Deng Xiaoping, you know, welcomed uh, the international community into China. He opened uh, China. He moved away from 
uh, Mao Zedong's one-man authoritarian leadership to a much more collective leadership. Um, uh, you know, he introduced the market uh, into China, not only the market in terms of the economy, but really the marketplace of ideas. Um, and he, again, he welcomed, uh, you know, insight and opinion and foreign capital uh, from the outside world. Uh, and he also said, you know, that China should maintain a low profile foreign policy. Uh, so, you know, a fairly radically different um, picture of China began to emerge uh, in that second revolution uh, led by Deng Xiaoping. Fast forward just a little bit more than 30 years uh, to 2012, and you have uh, the advent of Xi Jinping. And that's the third revolution, and that's the period in which uh, China uh, becomes strong and, as he says, is moving towards center stage. And that was, you know, 2017. And I would say by now, you know, roughly four years later, China is, is at the center stage. Um, and Xi Jinping uh, really has transformed China, uh, I would argue. Uh, you know, he moved away. Uh, from Deng Xiaoping's collective leadership back to a much more one-man authoritarian form of leadership, centralizing a lot of power into his own hands. Uh, he you know, reasserted the power of the Chinese Communist Party into Chinese society, into the Chinese economy. Uh, you know, that was something that you know, Deng had reversed uh, from the Maoist era. He had really tried to remove the party in many respects from everyday political and economic life uh, in China. Uh, Xi Jinping also created what I call, um, you know, a virtual wall of restrictions and regulations uh, so that he could more closely control what comes into the country and what goes out of the country, uh, right? So he doesn't really want uh, a lot of foreign ideas, foreign culture uh, coming into China. Um, you know, passed a very restrictive uh, foreign non-governmental uh, uh, organization law, for example, that ended up uh, you know, cutting the number of foreign NGOs uh, in China that were operating on issues like the environment or poverty alleviation or, or health uh, from over 7,000 in 2016 uh, to around 500 um, uh, after uh, 2017. So again, very different. And of course, you know, I think the most noticeable difference for you know, most of us here in the United States is that Xi Jinping clearly doesn't believe in a low profile foreign policy. Uh, he has a much more ambitious, uh, an assertive uh, uh, Chinese foreign policy that I think is, you know, really about transforming uh, the international landscape so that it reflects Chinese values and norms and policy preferences. So those are the three revolutions as uh, sort of I understood them. Well, thank you. Uh, early in the book, you talk about the process by which uh, uh, President Xi sort of consolidated power for himself and uh, sort of changed the the standing and role of, of the party in society. And an important part of that was the anti-corruption campaign that, that began uh, really before, uh, under his leadership, even before he was the uh, the, the, the core leader of, of, uh, of the party. Uh, can you uh, can you give us sort of an update? Uh, you know, this was something that just uh, was not a one-shot deal. It seemed to sort of keep building. Uh, so can you give us an update on where the anti-corruption uh, campaign stands, but also just be curious to know what you see in terms of the how successful it has been in changing the reputation of improving the reputation of the party within China and actually changing the way things happen? Sure. So, I mean, you know, first, I think it's important to recognize that anti-corruption campaigns were really a staple of Chinese life, you know, dating back 
you know, well, first of all, centuries, but but really, you know, Mao Zedong, you know, launched the first anti-corruption campaign practically, you know, two years into his into his tenure in the early 1950s. Um, but but most often you'd have an anti-corruption campaign that would sort of you know peak within a year and then die down. And then you'd go many years without another one and then they'd sort of pop up again. I think what's distinguished uh, Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign um, has been uh, just how consistent it's been, how robust it has been. Um, it, he hasn't pulled back, you know. So every year, at least up until 2019, more officials were arrested than the year before. So at this point in time, uh, it, the number of officials that have been detained, arrested, um, and some have been prosecuted, some have not, you know, now total three million. So that's three million members out of 90 million Communist Party members. So it is not an inconsequential number. Um, in in terms of the sort of how how the anti-corruption campaign is, is prosecuted, you know, um, the challenge is that, that he, he doesn't rely, there's no, you know, there's no free media, there's not an independent judiciary, uh, you're not undertaking, you know, he doesn't welcome a participation from the broader populace. That was something that actually a lot of people were interested in in the early stages of the Xi era was, you know, could the people become more involved uh, in the anti-corruption campaign, right? Exposing the people that they knew were corrupt. But Xi Jinping didn't actually have any interest in that. So it's a very much a top-down anti-corruption campaign. Um, so it's, you know, his inner circle and the Central Disciplinary Commission, these are the people that decide, you know, whom, uh, right, to go after. And, uh, and so there was a great study that was done early on in the campaign uh, by a professor who's now at Harvard that looked at sort of the, the senior most officials at the level of vice minister and above and found that 40% of those officials that were being arrested for corruption were somehow tied into uh, opponents of Xi Jinping. Somehow they, they had connections um, to leading political figures uh, who uh, you know, had competed in some way with Xi Jinping. So there was clearly a political element to it, um, but also corruption was very real. And Xi Jinping himself um, took it very seriously. It was really the one issue as I was doing the research for the book, that I discovered that Xi Jinping had cared about for pretty much his whole career. Uh, you know, he he believed that uh, Chinese officials should not use their positions for you know personal economic gain, um, and that is something that he talked about as he moved up uh, through the party ranks. Not really a big economic reformer, not a you know not a leader in some other significant way, but this. I think was is actually fairly core to his belief system, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't use it for his own personal political gain. And people have now pointed out that virtually nobody who's close to Xi Jinping has ever been arrested for corruption. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. So, you know, anyway, so that's kind of the, the nature of the campaign. Um, in terms of an update, I haven't actually seen the numbers from 2020. I don't know how the pandemic, for example, affected um, the campaign. One of the, but what has shifted a little bit is um, they expanded the campaign to include 
um, non-party members, so officials who are not members of the Communist Party, and especially leading officials. So you might have the head of a hospital who is uh, not a Communist Party member. So important to understand in China's system that you know the Communist Party officials hold 60% of all sort of significant civil service positions, right? So <clears throat> we're talking roughly about the other 40% of government officials that could be affected by this. Um, and so I don't know what's happened, you know, in the in the past year. Or so my guess is that there's it was there was a little bit of a, a drop off, but but I don't know. So has it been successful to the last uh, part of your question? Um, you know, that depends on how you measure success. And I'd say you could say 3 million people out of 90 million. There's something there, right? That's an accomplishment in and of itself, removing, you know, those 3 million people from their positions or at least, you know, exploring whether they were corrupt or not. Um, I think how it, the, the ways in which it hasn't been successful is that, you know, he's still arresting more officials every year than he did the year before. Mm -hmm. So what that suggests to me, you know, one of two things happening. Sometimes these officials are being arrested for crimes they committed years ago, right? And again, there can be other motives in terms of going after a person. So you can, you know, anybody in China can probably almost be found to be corrupt, any official, because that's how you did business, right? But, uh, but so it just depends on who the government wants to go after. So one could say that the fact that there are still so many people being arrested, you know, suggests mm -hmm. that, that actually they haven't addressed the core of the problem. And I guess the other point I'd make is that he has promoted people into very senior positions who have then been arrested for corruption. So for example, uh, China had uh, for the first time, the president of Interpol uh, in 2016, was a Chinese official who'd been a senior official in the public security apparatus, right? He, Xi Jinping promoted him into the position and within you know, two years, he was arrested, detained uh, back in China, forced to come home and you know, sentenced to jail for I forget how many years now. Uh, you know, the head of uh, China's sort of cyber uh, commission, Lu Wei, uh, you know, also promoted by Xi Jinping, later arrested for corruption. So I, I guess I would say that I think um, it's, it's definitely had an impact. I think that many people in China are very um, supportive of the campaign, um, mm -hmm. especially at the local level. Uh, but I don't think that it has addressed the root causes of it. I don't think that it has had the transformational um, effect on people's behavior that uh, Xi Jinping would have desired. You know, we're now, you know, more than eight years into his tenure. Um, thank you. you. You mentioned that when, when Xi Jinping became uh, president, he was not, he did not have a, a reputation or really a background in economic reform. Uh, but then we get to this third plenum in November of 2013, and there was this big announcement that that uh, economic reform uh, and markets were going to start ruling everything. I mean, there, there was uh, what seemed to be very promising. And and as you sort of pointed out in the book, there were uh, Western scholars at the, at the time who said, well, this this proves that she is more in the tradition of, of Deng Xiaoping than of, of Mao or of other people. Uh, but then you go on in the rest of that particular chapter to talk about uh, sort of the the difficulties of bringing about market reform in in China uh the the history the the prehistory of all of this going back to uh, you know before 1949 and uh and the so the roadblocks that have come in the way of market reform 
So I guess my question is, how would you describe, uh, I teach comparative economic systems classes. If, if you say, how you know, to a person who has no idea about China at all, and if they just say, what is the nature of the economic system in China today? How would you describe that? And do you think it's sort of moving in a more market direction, or is it moving in a direction of being more centrally controlled? Hmm. Um, I mean, it's a not. This is not going to be a good word. It's like it's a mixed economy, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's um, it's still half baked in in terms of of the reform process and the and its move toward the market. I think you know, as, as you were saying you know, that people thought that Xi Jinping was going to be a big market reformer, the third plenum marked uh, sort of an inflection point where economic reforms were again going to move forward because they really had stagnated uh, during the Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao era. Um, and, you know, being in, in New York City, I can tell you that the financial community um, all was very excited about the third plenum. And they were convinced uh, that Xi Jinping was a big economic reformer. And in fact, China brought a lot of them, it's very interesting, brought a number of very prominent um, you know, media personalities, as well as a number of uh, very senior financial officials from, not financial officials, business people, bankers and others from New York City to Beijing, where they kind of got treated to this special seminar around the unveiling of the third plenum. Uh, and they all came back and they were all excited. And I said, well, you know, did you actually read the document? Because, you know, in the third plenum, it does say that the market will be a decisive force. It also says that the state will retain a commanding role in the economy. So if you just wait a couple pages, you know, you're mm -hmm. going to see that that actually there's a little bit of, of uh, you know, of continuation of, of uh, the state's role. And, and in fact, what we've seen is that, you know, Xi Jinping is someone both in the political realm and in the economic realm, who you know, likes to maintain control. And I think it's very difficult for him to sort of take his fingers off the levers of control. And he has put the party back into uh, you know, uh, the economy, um, strengthened the role of the party, certainly within state-owned enterprises and even in private enterprises. I mean, one of the things I uh, talk about you know, is the is the fact that uh, you know they have you know party officials now you know in in private enterprises who are supposed to be you know responsible for making decisions about investments when they have no business doing that, but just because they're party officials, Xi Jinping wants to ensure that uh, private enterprise aligns you know its work, its efforts, its decisions with the interests of the party, um, and certainly you can see that now. I think with the crackdown on the you know, in the financial sector on companies like Alibaba, et cetera, um, a lot of these companies pay, you know, a very steep um, price, uh, you know, they're flying high and, and now they're being uh, reined in by the party. So, uh, you know, my sense for where the economy is going, um, you know, basically Xi Jinping has announced a big new um, sort of theory, dual circulation, uh, just this, mm -hmm. he announced it last August, it's coming, you know, it was, again, promoted this past March at the two sessions, uh, which is the gathering of the National People's Congress and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. Basically, the idea is that China is its own mini global economy, that it can innovate, manufacture, and produce, you know, as much as possible, right? It, it wants, Xi Jinping wants to expand the degree to which China is basically self-sufficient. At the same time, you know, still he wants to, to, you know, engage with the global economy. It's not about becoming autarkic. 
uh, you know, he, their exports. He wants to ensure that China, um, you know, has access to the technology and know-how that it needs. Uh, and, you know, he made a very interesting statement uh, that he wants to make sure that China is still part of the global supply chains uh, because, you know, there was a big move beginning in the Trump administration, of course, uh, and not only in the US, but other countries to encourage companies to move away from China, right? To reshore, uh, to pull parts of their supply chains uh, out of China in part for security reasons, in part for economic reasons. And so Xi Jinping wants to make sure that the Chinese economy remains open to foreign investment uh, because he doesn't you know, want these firms to leave. He believes that having those companies in China is not only important for the Chinese economy, making it more competitive, but it's important as a deterrent in the sort of more political and strategic realm, because he knows that those business people will go you know, to their governments and lobby on behalf of China. So, uh, so I think you know, Xi Jinping is always sort of fiddling with the degree uh, to which China opens and closes uh, its economy. You can never be sure, uh, you know, what you're going to get. I'll make one last point on this because I know I'm, I'm going on long, but I think it's just to your to point. I think it's a, a useful example. You know, one of the big shifts that we've seen in the past probably six to nine months um, has been opening in the in the financial services sector, mm -hmm. uh, and so a lot of excitement. J.P. Morgan, other banks have like gone in. You know, now all of a sudden in the past month or so. We've had a whole new set of regulations about how much you know, capital these banks can bring in and a bunch of other things. And so you know, there's a huge opening, right? And everybody thinks, wow, this is great. Everything's all set. And then all of a sudden they start to eat away at it until the point that you begin to wonder like, you know, how, much, how much is this really gonna work in the end? So again, I think you know, there's just this opening and closing and it's just a constant process. Yeah, we're we're already getting some good questions in the in the Q and A box, and I encourage all of you to keep those questions coming. Actually, there there are two from Ashwin uh, Jayakumar that that I think connect to things you just talked about. One of them, you you, you mentioned that that Xi Jinping is somebody who doesn't like to give up control. Well, so obviously, one question is how long after the constitutional changes that he pushed through, how long do you think he will choose to stay in his current position? But uh, Ashwin also asked this question, which seems to connect with your what you were just saying about financial services. What's your take on the Jack Ma and Alibaba situation currently unfolding? Will this affect investment within the, the country in terms of FDI? So- Okay. so. Um... I'll try to be uh, brief so we can have as many questions as possible. In terms of how long Xi Jinping is going to stay, yes, he amended the constitution so that he can hold the presidency um, as for forever. So now he can hold the three most important positions, general secretary of the Communist Party, chairman of the Central Military Commission, and president of the country for life. I imagine um, that uh, 2035 uh, is probably a safe bet for when he would retreat uh, from all of those positions, uh, for sure. I think he might uh, retire out earlier than that, but he will just step back to the second line. I think in any case, no matter which one or whether all of the positions he gives up, he will hold the title of chairman uh, so that he can continue uh, to pull the strings in terms of you know, sort of overall broad uh, policy and strategy. It's clear he has not identified a successor 
anyone that he trusts to, to realize his vision because he has a vision for where he wants to see the country go in 2035 and 2049. And I think he wants to be in power as long as possible uh, to realize that vision. In terms of Jack Ma and Alibaba and what this all means, you know, I think um, the Jack Ma story is, is, is a couple different stories wrapped into one. And, you know, it's a story of, um, of real concern by the Chinese government around fintech uh, and uh, Chinese government's ability uh, to control uh, the financial uh, sort of uh, services sector and, and in particular um, ant uh, and sort of the lending and, and uh, you know, sort of reining all of that in. It's also a story of, of Jack Ma flying a little too high to, you know, close to the sun. Um, mm -hmm. And it's because it's not only about, it, the, the punishment now is not only um, in terms of uh, transforming uh, Ant from a FinTech uh, company into a bank, uh, which lowers its valuation, which means it has to have a lot more, you know, capital reserves, uh, basically takes all the fun out of it for Jack Ma, let's put it that way. Uh, but they're also, you know, just basically putting the kibosh on the university, uh, his very special university that he was running kind of a business school, elite, very elite business school. Um, and so this is a much bigger um, attack on him. And the fact that we've only seen him appear once really in public uh, since November, you know, is very telling. Uh, you know, what does it mean in terms of FDI? So far, it, it hasn't seemed to scare off uh, foreign direct investment. Uh, you know, last year, um, uh, China surpassed the United States uh, uh, as the largest recipient of FDI in the world. Uh, and so, you know, there's just a lot of enthusiasm uh, in, in the international community. Uh, you know, everyone believes they can make money uh, in China. Now that China's opened up its bond market and, you know, got a lot of, again, more access for financial services, I think, um, you know, you're going to see a lot of money continue to flow in. So I think it raises alarm bells, uh, but it's not enough to deter people from, from investing. That, that would be my take. Okay. By the way, I don't want to get nerdy about this because hopefully we can have a conversation some other time. But when you said that you think that the position that that she would hold on to as as chairman, uh, once upon a time, Deng Xiaoping never was chairman. He was he held on to the military commission, and so it's it seems like there there are various options here. But uh, but uh, like to talk a little bit about technology and see how that sort of fits to what we're doing in the US right now. Obviously, an important part of the competition between the US and China. And, uh, you know, the the intelligence community just came out with this new uh, uh, assessment just well, it was just released today, but it was uh, dated a few days ago, saying that China is now our, our major competitor in the world. And let's see, I'm trying to remember the phraseology it used to talk about that. But uh, clearly, China has been doing very well in some technologies and 5G and uh, advances in artificial intelligence has some advantages in those areas, just given the ability to collect data and work with sort of the oil of, of artificial intelligence. Uh, so I, I wonder, uh, right now, we have the debate going on in the United States about the infrastructure bill. And that includes, I think, $180 billion for R&D expenditures in the U.S., another $100 billion for, for broadband. Uh, 
in your in your Senate testimony, you talked about the fact that that China on these technological issues has taken a strategic approach, looking at the long term. That that the U.S. needs to be more strategic in its decision making. Do you see what's going on with things like the infrastructure bill as uh, as helpful in, in in that direction? No, I I do. Um, I mean it. In, in many respects, you know, in some areas we're, we're, we're playing catch up, you know, I mean, one of the things that we see China now doing is, you know, moving ahead very aggressively with the new digital currency electronic payment system. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so and we're, we're still trying to figure out what we want to do in that space. And they're going to be they've got four pilot projects underway, they're going to roll it out in, in, uh, you know, at the Olympics. Um, and so so to some extent, the infrastructure bill is, is just about saying, yikes, you know, we have not been paying attention um, and we've, we've got to catch up. But I do think, you know, we're sometimes we, we you know, sort of diminish our own capabilities, our own successes. And I think part of that reason for that is that, um, you know, when you have a, a status quo power and you have a rising power, Right, every advantage, every you know improvement that the rising power makes looks like a loss somehow for the status quo power. And so I think the media often tend to hype uh, all of China's achievements. Um, and so uh, it's important. <laughs> that's a great picture. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 important to keep things in in perspective as well. And and so uh, yes, China is uh, has made advances in AI, but. You know, people would still say that the U.S. is the leading power when it comes to artificial intelligence. Uh, that you know we have 60% of the top researchers in AI in the world. Uh, I think China and the U.K. each have like 10%. Of course, about half of those researchers that we have are from China, which reminds us the importance of keeping our doors open and immigration and all those things. Um, and I think that in some respects, that is also part of the infrastructure of the United States, right? It's it's the hard infrastructure, of course, but it's also the soft infrastructure, and it's about our values of openness and and um, uh, you know transparency, and uh, and so I think that's also what the Biden administration is is going to bring to this process. Um, so I think they're headed in the right direction. Uh, I think the R and D spending is essential. Um, and look, if you look, I think something like fifty percent of the sort of top one hundred you know, breakthrough technologies in the United States throughout history were the result of public-private partnerships that might even be a higher percentage than that. Um, so I think that tells us that these things can work, right? Having the government engaged, uh, it can be extremely important. And so um, the private sector can't do it all. And especially when you're competing with China, you know, a country that, you know, provides enormous subsidies uh, to its companies. Uh, and we're talking not just central government subsidies, but, you know, local governments are supporting, uh, you know, their, their own champions. Um, I think, you know, we have to change the way that we do business. We have to adapt, right? We have to be cognizant of, of you know, the strategy of the other team, right? I mean, it's like, you know, Baylor can go out on the basketball, you know, uh, you know, court and play its game, but it should adjust to the way the other team is playing as well. And I think that's also, you know, what we uh, have to do with regard to to China. I have to say, I'm fairly optimistic, frankly. Um, I, I think, um, you know, we are uh, innately an innovative country. And when it comes mm -hmm. to breakthrough technology, we are the best uh, mm -hmm. for true innovation. Um, and, uh, you know, look at our vaccines. 
right? right. I guarantee you, here's a good example, because I guarantee you that if, if China had Pfizer and Moderna, you know, the US media and media everywhere would be full of the fact that they had the two most efficacious vaccines in the world, right? This would be seen as yet another example of the triumph of China. But because it's the United States, because people expect that from the United States, it doesn't get that same kind of, of media attention and, and hype. So that's just a good, maybe a way of showing, sort of explicating what I meant when I said, you know, when we frame it that way, it's easy for us to lose. Since you mentioned the vaccines, I had this sort of a little later in my outline, but I'll go on and, and say and ask this. Uh, if we, if we, 10 years from now, when we look back at the coronavirus uh, pandemic, and we say, uh, obviously, you know, the, the, the pandemic has significances of all kinds, uh, but, but part of it that we're talking about here has to do with the sort of relative reputations of these two competing powers, the US and China. And so uh, uh, when, when, uh, when we're looking back at this two year, 10 years from now, and the sort of the view of these two countries from the world, on the one side, we have these questions about, still questions about the actual origins of, of, the, of the virus, but uh, less question about the fact that, that China was a bit slow, uh, this innate secrecy and in uh, kind of getting the word out and allowing even a domestic response to, to occur as soon as it should have occurred in China. Uh, but on the other hand, positively, China, through very strong actions, has, uh, has been able to sort of mitigate the, the effects internally and uh, where we've sort of been the other way around. We've done just a horrible job of mitigating the, the disease. But as you mentioned, we've, uh, we've uh, played a, an important role in developing those vaccines. And now we have one of the most successful rollouts of the vaccine in the world. And so there are these different things going on. And of course, we what we don't know is uh, whether we'll ever get a clear answer to the question of where the, you know, how the virus kind of got out in the public in the first place. We, we may or may not ever know that. But but what's your uh, what's your guess as to what when we look back at this 10 years from now, uh, sort of a postmortem of this whole thing, what will we think of the impact of of this uh, this pandemic? So I, mean, I, I would say that the story isn't fully told, I think, as you alluded to. And so I don't know that we can look back and have the complete picture yet. And we don't even know what form the pandemic might continue, might spike, we, you know, things can, things can still change. So, but that being said, I think, um, you know, for, from Chinese perspective, this, this is a, you know, they are triumphal, uh, they are triumphant. And, mm -hmm. and so this is, you know, Xi Jinping, uh, talks about this as you know the east is rising the west is declining this is a strategic opportunity um, it's a little bit like uh what happened during the global financial crisis um you know where china looked and said hmm you know we always knew we were going to surpass the united states it's just happening a lot faster than we thought uh and and they were surprised when the u.s bounced back uh you know after uh the financial crisis uh, and you know, hopefully, I think for, for, for all our sakes, they'll be surprised again when we bounce back after after this. Um, 
Look, I think there's no doubt that the United States has taken a very significant hit to its um, international standing and, and prestige as a result of you know, our chaotic and truly terrible handling mm-hmm. of this pandemic. I, there's just, you know, and people can blame China, you know, for covering up, for covering it up at the outset, and they deserve to be held accountable. They have yet to admit any culpability. They don't say they've done anything wrong. They were transparent. They did everything, not just for China, but for the entire world, you know. So that is not okay. But, you know, in the end, we lost, what, half a million people. And there is, there is no, you know, there's no justification for that. And, and nothing more that, that can be said as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, in the true, um, I think most important meaning, um, when we look back at this, um, I think, you know, our best hope is to say that this was really an important wake up call, you know, for us as a country. Um, and frankly, everything else that attended uh, that whole period, you know, the racism and the, you know, Kung flu and China virus, all of that, I think is just a terrible stain uh, on uh, the United States. And so, you know, we have work to do uh, to, to make up for that. Um, you know, now I will say that, uh, you know, from the perspective of the rest of the world, looking at China, what did turn out to be quite interesting was that China had an amazing story to tell, as you say, you know, within two months, they basically, you know, brought this virus under control. They were able to become largest provider of uh, PPE, personal protective equipment. Uh, You know, they are an enormous provider right now of vaccines. So they have mask diplomacy, they have vaccine diplomacy, um, their economy grew by 2.3%, you know, ours contracted, everybody, you know, all the major economies contracted except for China. So they have a great story to tell. But because they behaved in such a bullying and ugly fashion, right, the whole wolf, wolf warrior diplomacy, the coercion, you know, the boycott of Australian goods because Australia dared to ask for an investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. When you look at public opinion polls uh, that have been taken globally, right, Southeast Asia, Europe, North America, I mean, globally, I mean, Xi Jinping and, and uh, China, like the, the plummeted, their reputation plummeted between 2019 and, and, and 2020, um, because people were so um, appalled, I think, frankly, uh, by how China uh, behaved, right, as it was, again, leading in uh, the, resp- the global response. Um, but between that and Hong Kong and Xinjiang, all of these things sort of combined, I think, really to, um, uh, to undermine uh, what otherwise should have been uh, a real sort of diplomatic triumph for China. Mm-hmm. Before we get too far away from the topic of technology, we're getting a lot of really good questions. I, I think we could probably go on for about four hours if, if, uh, if you're ready for that, but uh, I don't think we will. Uh, uh, Howard Townsend asked, is China still in the habit of stealing technology from the U.S. and other Western uh, companies? And um, or I guess we could broaden that question and just say uh, on the this broader question of intellectual property rights, uh, what should the U.S. be doing uh, for protection of, of 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 intellectual property rights in our interactions with China? Yeah. So um, I, I would say that if you look at reports from um, the US-China Chamber of Commerce and the European Union and China Chamber of Commerce, 
you'll see that over the past few years, um, companies generally report an improvement um, in uh, China's protection of intellectual property. So overall, I would say the trend line is improving. Having said that, you know, companies here in the United States report, you know, 10,000 attacks, cyber attacks, right? And it's not just for, you know, sort of, you know, the technology that someone has to, to make a particular machine tool, right? Or, or an algorithm or something, but it can be um, intellectual property around a deal, right? So attacks mm -hmm. on law firms and investment banks um, about, you know, their deal-making strategies um, or their offers. Uh, so, you know, I, I, can, I have to say, I don't have a, what I would call a really good comprehensive picture of, of sort of intellectual property um, protection, because I think the nature of, of what's going on has changed. But for companies that are doing business inside China, I think they overall have found that there's better intellectual property rights protection now than, you know, a decade ago. And this was also actually one of the elements of um, President Trump's um, a trade deal with China was uh, an assurance that China would improve uh, its intellectual property uh, rights protection. So uh, I'm cautiously optimistic, but not actually not really. <laughs> well, and, that, and that's very similar to the story I've been hearing from business people that I know that are working in, in China. But there's also seems to be on this topic and several other topics that you address in the book and elsewhere to some extent, a disconnect between de jure and de facto. I mean, the uh, uh, the uh, the Chinese laws for for protection of intellectual property are quite good, uh, but then there's the question of of uh, uh, the the way those are administered. And uh, and in China, if you want to administer something strictly, you can do that. But but. Uh, uh, Earlier, I mentioned, and you, you were you were concerned that you wrote your dissertation in 1994. I wrote mine in 1978, and so uh, okay. you're 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 a youngster as far as okay. I'm concerned. Okay. Uh, but uh, but again, that that dissertation was about uh, about the, the the question of climate change, and in uh, the book uh, The Third Revolution, there's a a chapter. Uh, sort of on the on the the topic of of the environment and and China's addressing of its environmental problems, which uh, I've been to China, I think it's twelve times, and and I've said that if I were a Chinese economist, I think I would be an environmental economist because <laughs> if you can't breathe, nothing else seems to matter a lot, you know, and uh, uh, so, but you you talk in the book about your, your phrase was the undeniable progress that China has made in in a number of areas we we know about their development of solar panels and of uh, 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 moving quickly into electric cars there are those sorts of things but on the other side you still have coal-powered plants being built and in the and in the book you talk about this kind of geographic inequality that uh, there's been sort of protection of the the eastern and coastal areas, while uh, uh, rapid development in the west means that the the environment continues to slide there. So there's been sort of a zero sum game within China. Uh, now coming out of all that, we have these recent announcements from President Xi that the country is going to 
achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. Uh, what is your take on that uh, on that pledge? Yeah. So I'm very fond of pointing out that it's pretty much the one pledge that Xi Jinping has made because he loves to set targets and timetables where he is most certainly not going to be around to see whether <laughs> it happens or not. So, so um, but I would say this. I think um, uh, you know. 2060 is, is in his mind a, a long time away. Um, and I think one of the things that people look, they have, you know, they have uh, made progress, as I said, and they've put in place, uh, you know, an, um, a trading system, uh, uh, emissions trading system uh, for the power sector. Uh, they've opened up this whole green bond market. There's a lot going on. Um, Xi Jinping has said they're going to have 25% of their primary energy come from renewables by 2030. So they have some targets in place. There are many problems with you know, each one of those initiatives in terms of how real they are and how much they're going to accomplish, how robust, for example, the emissions trading system is. And the answer is not very. Um, I think the real um, issue is that you know, coal continues to expand um, and CO2 emissions have continued to increase every year since the US uh, under President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. Once the US was, was out, China seemed to feel no real restraint or restrictions. What's so interesting is that US uh, American emissions actually fell for several of those years. So it's pretty funny. Mm -hmm. We pulled out of Paris and our emissions decrease. They stay in and get all the, the love from the international community and their emissions continue to increase. I mean, technically speaking, they're allowed to have their emissions increase until 2030. That's when they have their emissions are supposed to peak. The real issue, I would say, are sort of twofold. One, China continues to export uh, coal-fired power plants globally through its Belt and Road Initiative, um, as well as other heavy, you know, polluting industries. Um, uh, and um, two, and now I just forgot what my second point was going to be. But I guess, I guess the point is, is um, you know, that they, um, ah, yes, that people were expecting from the two sessions that I mentioned earlier that people were expecting China to come out with some more ambitious targets. So there's actually a lot of discussion among climate experts in China, a lot of disappointment uh, because they believe that the government actually is not on a path to realize that carbon neutrality goal by 2060. They don't see the evidence that China's taking the steps now over the next five years, right? Because at the two sessions, they also presented the next five-year plan that it hasn't put in the policies that are going to allow it to achieve that 2060 carbon neutrality goal. So that kind of raises some questions um, and some doubts in people's minds um, about the direction in which China's moving. I would say um, only that we have to wait to see. I'm gonna give them the rest of this year uh, because as you probably know, you know um, uh, former Senator Kerry is going to China um, to have a climate uh, meeting with uh, Xie Zhenhua, who's sort of their top uh, climate person. Um, and we have the Glasgow summit coming in the fall. So it's possible that China was holding some of its fire uh, to see, you know, maybe can make some other announcements, you know, alongside the United States around climate change. That's one possibility. That would be the optimistic scenario. Um, so we'll hold our breath for that and see what happens. You mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative and in the Q&A, we've gotten quite a few questions related one way or another to that. And several of those are related to, to China's role in Africa. And uh, so uh, obviously uh, China sees China, which in some ways I 
the, the way it's been up to this point, at least, it's sort of like a big factory that just needs lots and lots of raw materials. And so uh, BRI in, in Africa partly seems to be designed to, to bring in the, uh, the resources that are needed in China. But uh, what do you see as, as China's sort of agenda in Africa and uh, what, ex what all is it trying to accomplish there? So, you know, China actually has very long history in Africa, um, you know, dating back to the 50s and the 60s. Um, it's been very deeply engaged um, there. Um, so it's considered kind of a long-term, you know, partner for many African countries. Uh, uh, it has a, an organization um, that, you know, is at China plus all the countries of Africa. They meet every year. Uh, Xi Jinping typically has gone uh, to an African country at the outset of every year, sort of his first big visit. Um, I don't know whether that's true this year, but in any case, um, it's, it is beyond the Belt and Road, that China-African relationship. I think what's interesting is um, Belt and Road, you're absolutely right that China has long looked at Africa for its natural resources. And a lot of the types of infrastructure that it did throughout the 90s and 2000s um, before Belt and Road, a lot of that had to do with being able to get those resources out to China. So, you, you know, you had a mine, you actually needed to build the road and help the port in order to get the, the you know, commodities out back to China. So, but now this is about connectivity and a lot of it has to do with exporting Chinese overcapacity uh, because China's built up so much itself. It has a lot of, you know, companies that build dams and, and you know, bridges and railroads, et cetera. So a lot of it has to do with that. Um, it's also, I think, strategic, right? China's put in its first military logistics base in Djibouti. Um, so as People's Liberation Army has grown in strength um, and expanded uh, its mandate, you know, to basically protect the Chinese people and Chinese commerce globally, uh, I think we're going to see more of these, uh, you know, sort of uh, logistics bases pop up. Um, uh, and then there's a political component to this as well. Oh, you have the data, the digital Silk Road, absolutely uh, important. And I think this is going to be, you know, along with the health Silk Road, because both of these things actually involve uh, more private companies than state-owned companies as well. I think these are going to be the two big pushes for China moving forward. Um, and this is, you know, it's satellite systems, it's uh, fiber optic cables, it's e-commerce, it's going to be this uh, digital currency that I mentioned um, earlier. Uh, I think China sees a lot of opportunities here. You know, in Kenya, <clears throat> um, uh, there's a Star Times has a project where they're basically bringing television to, you know, 10,000 um, uh, homes uh, or 10,000 villages, sorry. And uh, uh, they're providing the content. So it's not just the actual infrastructure part, but again, they're bringing in, you know, politics mm -hmm. into it and providing the content. So the cheapest um, available um uh, you know, sort of package uh, for these people is one that has TV from Kenya and TV from China. If you want the BBC or Al Jazeera, you have to pay more. So very clever, um, really. Uh, they're training officials in places like Tanzania on how to control the internet and, and uh, manage civil society. So um, the Belt and Road in Africa is a, is a big enterprise. Um, so it's not really just about accessing resources anymore. It's it's really in some ways transforming the landscape in, in ways that ensure that Africa will align more closely mm -hmm. with, uh, with Beijing. Mm -hmm. 
we're down to just our last few minutes and I there are a few other questions I want to be sure to get in one of them this year uh we're marking the 50th anniversary of ping pong diplomacy back in 1971 but also this year it's it's uh uh this this next year uh, we, we have the the Beijing Winter Olympics coming up and so usually sports has been this kind of hallowed uh, ground that we we say that ping pong is what helped to normalize relations we try to leave politics on the side but of course uh it's difficult to do that these days and so uh a number of people early on called for a boycott of the of the beijing olympics uh the the biden administration said they're not really considering that but uh, Mitt romney and and uh, others have said well okay let's let's send a team and let's send television over there but nobody else should go uh do, do you see sports as kind of a politics free free zone or uh what, what what do you think about the olympics no i don't i don't think sports has ever been politics free actually um and and certainly not this olympics um with what's going on in xinjiang which you know has been termed uh genocide uh, by the trump administration by the biden administration and by you know other countries as well and i think it, it bears pointing out that this issue of Xinjiang is not simply one that the United States is concerned about um, and the you know, upwards of a million Uyghur Muslims who are in labor and re-education camps in, in Xinjiang. Um, but this is something that um, you know, the European Union and the UK and Canada, you know, along with the United States, all these countries uh, you know, targeted sanctions against, uh, levied sanctions against uh, uh, a number of companies and also officials uh, in Xinjiang uh, who are deemed to be responsible for this. Um, so, you know, I, I like Mitt Romney's proposals. Um, basically, he had an opinion piece um, and talked really about, you know, yeah, send the TV, but we're not going to televise the opening ceremony, the closing ceremony. Mm -hmm. Let the athletes, you know, go, let them play, um, you know, compete. Um, but we don't want to give anything else to China in, in the process. Other people say we should move the Olympics. I think it's still open for debate. And again, other countries are having very serious debates on this exact same topic. Uh, so I would guess this is something that the Biden administration is going to talk you know, with our allies and our partners and come up with uh, hopefully a sort of um, uh, you know, coherent approach uh, you know, that brings us all together. Another huge issue, maybe huger than, than the one we just talked about, it's expected that tomorrow uh, President Biden will announce that the U.S. is going to fully withdraw from Afghanistan by 9-11 of this year, which is a little later than Trump had talked about, but still uh, getting out quickly. And a lot of people are looking at that as part of a pivot, uh, less attention on the Middle East, more on other places, and particularly East Asia. And this comes at a time when uh, you have military maneuvers around Taiwan. Uh, 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 Chinese, uh, both air and sea assets on both the west and east sides of, of Taiwan, which those locations have significance in themselves. So uh, in the threat assessment that came out, that was made public today and other places, uh, there are a number of military personnel saying they will not be surprised if we have an actual engagement of some sort. Others are saying that's overblown. What, what, what do you think? about the the possibility of an actual military engagement of some sort uh, around Taiwan in the next months or years? 
um, so quickly because I am cognizant of the fact that we're supposed to end on time. Um, I would say, I, I think it's unlikely that we'll have a military engagement that would sort of blow up into something significant uh, before the Olympics, uh, because you know, if China actually took some kind of action against Taiwan, that really would blow up their Olympics. I mean, nobody would go, right? So I, I think they know that. So I, I'm not, but I agree with people like Admiral Davidson, former head of Indo-PACOM, who said, you know, next two to six years, entirely possible that China will take action. I think Xi Jinping is very concerned about the direction in which Taiwan is moving. You know, like 2% of the people favor reunification with the mainland. Uh, I think he's concerned that the international community is uh, rallying around Taiwan, that Taiwan is being drawn into partnerships and other things that's gonna make it very difficult for China at some point in the you know future uh, to, to gain control over Taiwan. And so I think all of those things may impel him uh, to act sooner than uh, sooner than later. Well, there's a lot more I'd love to talk about, but uh, but the time has come. So, Liz Brailsford, I turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Steve, and thanks to both of you. What an excellent discussion! I love. Uh, we didn't get to talk about it too long, but I love what uh, ping pong diplomacy opened up for us. It was a whole new world uh, after that. And uh, Liz, I don't think you could be uh, long-winded. You are a wealth of information. So uh, thank you for your expertise, and you two are great conversation partners. And if you're not a member of uh, the council, please join us. We would love to have you. I want to see you more. I want to meet you in person. We are slowly moving in that direction. Please stay tuned to our newsletters for more news on that. We are thinking that uh, depending on the current uh, status at that time, but we're thinking that uh, fall, late fall, may be the time when we start to delve back into that. Uh, in any case, Thanks for joining us. Again, a thank you to Baylor University and Steve, you especially for your support in this. It is the last session of our uh, Global Business Forum series. We will be back. Thank you again. Have a great evening.